This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I believe it's fair to say that over the past few weeks we've been on occasion a little hard up for good news. Or in the case of Mr. McMillan, just plain hard up. So we're going to make a concerted effort to see if we can uh, lean toward the good news. Even if it's sort of a mixed bag, we'll try and emphasize the good. But we'll try. And to that end, we hope in our second segment today to get a firsthand report of um, um, some adventures more unusual than most of us have been having. Uh, We expect to speak with our good friend, Dr. Sean Killam, who (laughs) found himself down in the middle of the Caribbean when all of this commenced. And... uh, Found himself, well, a bit stranded. That'll be an interesting tale in our second segment today. You want to stay tuned for that. I do want to note also a meme which appeared uh, sent from our Australian correspondent, whom we hope to bring back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Australia is coming out of this a lot better than most countries. Uh, I guess it helps to be an island nation. But um, uh, the meme that was sent around said, here's a very appropriate analogy. Quote, The curve is flattening. We can start lifting restrictions now. Equals, quote, The parachute has slowed our rate of descent. We can take it off now. Well, we don't think that's, strictly speaking, completely accurate, but uh, appreciate the humor in it. I think we have to laugh because the cover of the week this week has a big question mark next to the word when, with the subheadline as cases plateau, What will it take to safely ease restrictions? And on the show in the past few weeks, we've been sort of scratching our head at some of the stats out there. Um, They've been talking about things peaking in the middle of April. We weren't sure that was going to happen. But at this point, it does seem that um, we may have seen the worst of it. Now, you have to, of course, um, correlate that to the fact that we're taking extraordinary measures all across the country to achieve that plateauing or slowing, and uh, (laughs) a lot of folks are champing at the bit to get things back to quote-unquote normal, and what that's going to mean, I think, is probably anybody's guess, but we will do our best to make a guess or two. Speculating about the future at NBCNews.com, Denise Chow said, with flatten the curve, now a national mantra, a new rallying cry has emerged, test and trace. Experts agree the coronavirus won't simply go away, as President Trump once suggested, and a vaccine could be more than a year away. That means the only way America can return to quasi-normality in coming months is by testing citizens for the virus in massive numbers, then tracing and quarantining those infected and their recent contacts so the uninfected can return to work in relative safety. That's how South Korea, population 52 million, kept its COVID-19 deaths to only 225 compared to more than 26,000 in the U.S. so far, while avoiding sweeping lockdowns. Taking a more global view, as they usually do, The Economist noted that there is currently no globally agreed exit strategy. Individual countries are largely going it alone. They note that isn't wrong because the situation varies from place to place. But some form of global cooperation will be needed, for example, to allow travel and trade to resume. 
Looking at the situation in Spain, the second worst hit country after the U.S., The Economist notes that Spain seems to have turned a corner in one of the worst outbreaks of COVID-19. The daily number of cases has begun to fall compared with a daily increase of around 30% just a month ago. Hospitals, which were overwhelmed a fortnight ago, now have some spare capacity. Now, a friend of mine who's very good with statistics was also lamenting uh, some of these charts we've been seeing on these predictions of where it's going to peak, saying the numbers didn't look good to him. But nevertheless, if you compare the actual information we have and that of other countries like Spain, Germany, Austria, Denmark, which The Economist did, it does appear that things did peak a few days ago. Now, again, this is this is in concert with having restrictions on people's activities everywhere. It's just what's going to happen when we relax matters. And what is true between nations is also true between states. The week notes that battle lines were drawn when two sets of mostly Democratic state governors, three in the West and seven in the Northeast, formed consortiums to chart a mutual path forward. The state consortiums will be guided by science, said California Governor Gavin Newsom, and rely on extensive testing protocols, which Donald Trump has dismissed as unworkable and unnecessary. That announcement by Governor Newsom prompted a furious rebuke from Trump, who called the 10 states mutineers and thundered that his authority is total to call the shots, a widely disputed assertion he retreated from the following day, as we reported last week. Now, across the country, there have been various protests uh, in numerous locations of people complaining, uh, well, you've seen some of the signs, you know, saying, like, you know, sheltering is communism, or words to that effect, all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, as regarding those protests, we should take a little detour for a moment and and a look at maybe what's behind those. And for that look, we will go to the Washington Post article by Isaac Stanley Becker, which headlines... The anti-quarantine protests seem spontaneous, but behind the scenes, a powerful network is helping. Notes the piece. A network of right-leaning individuals and groups aided by nimble online outfits has helped incubate the fervor erupting in state capitals across the country. The activism is often organic and the frustration deeply felt, but it is also being amplified and in some cases coordinated by longtime conservative activists whose robust operations were initially set up with help from Republican mega donors. The Convention of States project, launched in 2015 with high dollar donations from the Family Foundation of Robert Mercer, billionaire hedge fund manager and Republican patron, it boasts past support from two members of the Trump administration. Ken Cuccinelli, acting director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and Ben Carson, our Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. It also trumpets a prior endorsement from Ron DeSantis, Republican Governor of Florida, and a close Trump ally who is pursuing an aggressive plan to reopen his state's economy. The initiative, aimed at curtailing federal power, is now leveraging its sweeping national network and digital arsenal to help stitch together scattered demonstrations across the country, making opposition to stay-at-home orders appear more widespread than is suggested by polling. Said Eric O'Keefe, board president of Citizens for Self-Governance, the parent organization of the Convention of States Project, we're providing a digital platform for people to plan and communicate about what they're doing. 
a longtime associate of the conservative activist Koch family. Eric O'Keefe helped manage David Koch's 1980 bid for the White House when he served as number two on the Libertarian ticket. Said O'Keefe, who lives in Wisconsin, to shut down our rural counties because of what's going on in New York City or in some sense Milwaukee is draconian. Now, the article notes that polls suggest most Americans support local directives encouraging them to stay home as COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, ravages the country, killing more than 44,000 people in the U.S. so far. Public health officials, including epidemiologists advising Trump's White House, agree that sweeping restrictions represent the most effective mitigation strategy in the absence of a vaccine, which could be more than a year away. Still, some activists insist that states should lift controls on commercial activity and public assembly, citing the effect of mass closures on business. They have been encouraged at times by Trump, whose Attorney General William Barr said in an interview with radio host Hugh Hewitt that the Justice Department would consider supporting lawsuits against restrictions that, quote, go too far, unquote. The swelling frustration on the right coincides with major policy changes in some states, especially those with Republican governors. Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee have all begun relaxing their restrictions in recent days. All right, I'm not going to read the entire article, but it's got a few little zingers in here we need to touch on. It notes the protests are reminiscent in some ways of the Tea Party movement and the demonstrations against the Affordable Care Act that erupted in 2010, which also involved a mix of homegrown activism and shrewd behind-the-scenes funding. For the Convention of States, public health is an unusual focus. It was founded to push for a convention that would add a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, which, in, in the wake of spending uh, $2 trillion on bailouts, that's, that's ironic, isn't it? Anyway, the Post notes the same anti-government impulse is now animating the group's campaign against coronavirus precautions. The group's president, Mark Meckler, said his aim was to act as a clearinghouse where these guys can all find each other, a role he learned as co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots. FreedomWorks, a libertarian advocacy group also active in Tea Party movements, is seeking to play a similar function, creating an online calendar of protests. It should be noted, as the piece does, that the protesters so far have not aimed their ire at Trump, although it is his administration's experts whose guidelines underlie many of the state's actions. All right, skipping ahead a bit, they note that in Michigan, among those organizing Operation Gridlock was Michonne Maddock, who sits on the Trump's campaign advisory board and is a prominent figure in the Women for Trump Coalition. Funds to promote the demonstration on Facebook came from the Michigan Freedom Fund, which is headed by Greg McNeely, longtime advisor to the family of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Anyway, the piece goes on to quote a bunch of these participants as denying that they are being funded by such organizations, but uh, the Post notes that others see linkages to groups pushing anti-quarantine uprisings. Robert Bruhl, sociologist at Drexel University, whose research is focused on climate lobbying, says the involvement of the Koch Institution apparatus in groups supporting the protests is clear to me. The presence of allies on the board usually means they're deeply engaged in the organization and most likely a funder. Bruhl said the blowback against the coronavirus precautions carries echoes of efforts to deny climate change, both of which rely on hostility toward government action. Okay, and now you know the rest of the story, or at least part of it. Anyway, regardless who's funding and organizing some of of these protests, it it does appear that a lot of states are going to act upon their wishes. 
And we should note at this point, as did Carolyn Johnson in the Washington Post, that a new testing option has emerged. Serology testing detects the presence of antibodies, not the virus itself, showing that the patient has been infected in the past and is now probably immune. That's, that's a big, big word there, probably. We don't know for sure. Since it's now thought, said Carolyn Johnson, that 25 to 50% of infections result in very mild or no symptoms, that number could be in the millions. Coronavirus antibody testing would divide the world into those who've had it and aren't at risk anymore and those who are. And after spending a lot of time on, in the last couple of programs trying to assess that, that key number out there of what is the ratio of people who are asymptomatic to those who are sick with coronavirus, we, we used a lot of what research we could find to indicate, as Carolyn Johnson in the Post said, that the number seems to be somewhere in the range of 25 to 50%. Well, that got turned on its head here in California in the last few days on the basis of two studies in Santa Clara County and Los Angeles County indicating that, according to their statistics, it's not a ratio of one to four. It's more like a ratio of maybe 15 to one. And we should note that headlines, at least from Wednesday, April 22nd, notes that two Californians died of coronavirus weeks before the previously known first United States death. Notes CNN, new autopsy results show that two Californians died of coronavirus in early and mid-February, up to three weeks before the previous known first U.S. death. The two deaths were in Santa Clara County on February 6th and 17th. The previously understood first coronavirus death was February 29th in Kirkland, Washington. Well, that's 23 days difference meaning things got an earlier start than we have previously realized. Dr. Akish Jaha, director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, told CNN's New Day that that is a very significant finding. Somebody who died February 6th probably contracted that virus early to mid-January. It takes at least two to three weeks from the time you contract the virus to the time you die. Jaha said if they did not contract coronavirus through travel abroad, that is also significant. And yes, there was no evidence these people had gone anywhere. Therefore, they picked it up domestically from someone else. As Dr. Jaha said, that means there was community spread happening in California as early as mid-January, if not earlier than that. He added, we really need to go back, look at a lot more cases from January, even December, and try to sort out when we did first really encounter this virus in the United States. This further underscores how badly we have dropped the ball in this country when it comes to testing. CNN also noted the time of the deaths of these individuals. Santa Clara County said the testing for the virus there was very limited, generally restricted only to people with a known travel history and seeking treatment for certain symptoms and available only through the CDC. And then we have the question of these studies in Santa Clara County and Los Angeles County, which frankly left me with, you know, a dropped jaw. First study I saw was from Santa Clara County, indicating that uh, they'd picked up, well, they estimated 2 to 4%, more or less, of people there had been infected with COVID-19 by April 1st when they found antibodies in their blood, which represents extrapolating it out somewhere between 48,000 and 80,000 people, which would be 50 plus 
times the number of cases the county officials have recorded by that time. In Los Angeles County, a study estimated between about 3 and 5.5% of the population, which would represent 221,000 to 442,000 people, had antibodies based on a drive through test conducted on April 10th and 11th. That would have been 25 to 55 times the number of cases the county officials recorded at that time. Now, uh, people were reporting that you see we're a long way toward herd immunity. And apparently this virus spreads like wildfire and is far more pervasive than anybody knew. That, of course, would indicate that the true death rate for coronavirus is a lot less than we have been fearing. It also means that it has spread far far more widely than anybody, anybody imagined, both of which suggest that moving faster rather than slower toward getting back to normal would be less dangerous. On the other hand, a lot of people point out validly, and we have as well, that probably the key metric in this is how many cases do you need to overwhelm your healthcare system? Because when you've done that, the death rate then takes a jump up to a new level. At any rate, I got up this morning trying to find an article that would piece all of this together, and I encountered the piece in Science by Gretchen Vogel, which we should take a moment to go through. The headline says, Antibody surveys suggesting vast undercount of coronavirus infections may be unreliable. Notes the article. Surveying large swaths of the public for antibodies, the new coronavirus promises to show how widespread undiagnosed infections are, how deadly the virus really is, and whether enough of the population has become immune for social distancing measures to be eased. But the first batch of results has generated more controversy than clarity. The survey results from Germany, the Netherlands, and several locations in the U.S. find that anywhere from 2 to 30% of certain populations have already been infected with the virus. Those numbers imply that confirmed COVID cases are an even smaller fraction of the true number of people infected than many had estimated, and that the vast majority of infections are mild. But many scientists question the accuracy of the antibody tests and complain that several of the research groups announced their findings in the press rather than in preprints or published papers where their data could be scrutinized. Critics are also wary because some of the researchers are on record advocating for an early end to lockdowns and other control measures and claim the new prevalence figures support that call. The piece notes that some observers warn that coronavirus' march to the population has still only just begun and that even if the antibody tests can be believed, they don't justify easing controls. Mark Perkins, a diagnostics expert at the World Health Organization, said you would have hoped for 45% or 60% positive. That would mean that there's lots of silent transmission and a lot of immunity in the population. And now looks sadly that like that's not true. Even the high numbers are relatively small. The article notes that many different academic and commercial tests for coronavirus antibodies are still being refined and validated. They can show whether someone's immune system has encountered the virus, but because no one knows what level of antibodies, if any, confers protection against this virus, the tests can't tell whether a person is immune to a future infection, and no one knows how long such an immunity might last. Anyway, the article mentions the German study, but I'm going to skip to the California part. And it should be clarified at the onset that if you have a disease that is relatively rare in the population and you have even 
a high specificity, meaning you have, it, it's rare to have a false positive test, that if the disease is fairly rare, that small number of false positives can nevertheless really skew your data. Notes the piece. A California serology study of 3,300 people released last week also drew strong criticism. The lead authors of the study, Jai Bhattacharya and Aaron Ben-David, whose study health policy at Stanford, worked with colleagues to recruit the residents of Santa Clara County through ads on Facebook. Now, 50 antibody tests were positive. That's about 1.5%. But after adjusting the stats to better reflect the county's demographics, they concluded that between 2.4 and 4.1% of the county's residents had likely been infected, suggesting, they say, the real number of infections was as many as 80,000, more than 50 times. That's more than 50 times as many as viral gene tests had confirmed and implies a low fatality rate. But the piece notes that on the day of the preprint posted, co-author Andrew Bogan, a biotech investor with a biophysics PhD, published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal same day, asking if policymakers were aware from the onset that COVID-19 death toll would be closer to that of seasonal flu, would they have risked tens of millions of jobs and livelihoods? The op-ed did not initially disclose his role in the study. The article notes, because the absolute number of positive tests was so small, false positives may have been nearly as common as real infections. The study also had relatively few participants from low-income and minority populations, meaning the statistical adjustments the researchers made could be way off. Andrew Gelman, Columbia University statistician and political scientist in an online commentary, said, I think the authors of the paper owe us all an apology. The numbers were essentially the product of a statistical error. Peace notes that Bhattacharya and Ben David also collaborated with Najir Sood, a health policy expert at USC, to do a similar study in L.A. County. They used the same antibody test on 846 people selected by a marketing firm to represent the county's demographics. In a press release issued this week, they estimated that 4% of the county's adult population has antibodies to the virus, as many as 300,000 people. Keep in mind, this is based on the fact that they found 35 people attested positive out of 846. Anyway, uh, it's, it's clear at this point that, that more testing is needed. And this is especially the case as we send people out to mingle. Now, there's talk about high-tech solutions to this, how Apple and Google are getting together to collaborate and how they're going to use phones to find out where everybody's been which is what they already were doing in South Korea. That was one reason their efforts were so successful. In the wake of SARS, South Korea and other Asian nations passed new laws that would allow them to track individuals, uh, rights that have so far not been (laughs) freely relinquished to the government here at home. And given a lack of an ability to do that, and still the fact that testing, uh, well, places like Bolinas, in Northern California, Marin County, a a wealthy little enclave, decided, oh, to hell with it. We're going to test ourselves. They ponied up the money to test everybody in town to get some accurate data because you need to do this. You need to test everybody in a locality to really know what the prevalence is among everybody in a locality. All right, at this point, I think I'm just going to shut up about all this testing and talk about some other stuff because we will return to this in the weeks to come. That I guarantee. I mentioned at the start of the program, we're trying to lean toward the positive today, and I think this will warm the hearts of dog lovers throughout America. (laughs) It turns out that China has now redefined dogs as pets, not livestock, as in the 
pre-virus era. Noted Reuters, though dog meat remains a delicacy in many regions in China, the Ministry of Agriculture said in a notice published last Wednesday that dogs would no longer be considered as livestock. It uses that designation for animals that can be bred to provide food, milk, fur, fiber, and medicine, or to serve the needs of the sports or the military. Anyway, this move in China to improve their PR no doubt uh, stems from the fact that a lot of people took a look at these so-called wet markets and the amount of animals of all types that are being eaten in China and decided that this, this has to be modified. So they're starting out with Fido. No word in the Reuters piece about what the city of Yulin in the region of Guangxi is going to do uh, as regards their annual dog meat festival, which they hold in June. And I had to laugh over a piece that was in New Scientist magazine about an underrated aspect of fitness, which boosts your health and your brain power and extends your lifespan, and no steps are needed, which is weight training. Well, more correctly, strength training. I had to laugh at this article by Helen Thompson because, you know, obviously <laughs> maintaining your muscular strength is going to pay dividends in all kinds of ways. I think that uh, this article was, uh, uh, was, was focused on because, you know, people are walking. Uh, as I look out my window right now with the microphone in front of me, I see people strolling down the street. And man, we're all seeing a lot more of that than we used to, huh? And that is good. But, you know, there's there's so many benefits from strength training that it seems surprising they had to write an article about it. But they did. I recommend you read it. I recommend you strength train. I recommend you do this because, well, it benefits your health. And Mr. McMillan suggests that you lift weights heavier than a cell phone. All right. In the three minutes or so we have left, let's see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Foresight with the news of a $141 million insurance payout to the All England Lawn Tennis Club, hosts of the now-canceled Wimbledon Tennis Tournament. The club has paid $2 million annually in pandemic insurance for each of the past 17 years. Smart. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for Czech nudists who have been targeted by local police for failing to wear face masks while sunbathing nude. Said a police spokesperson, citizens can be without clothes in places designated for this purpose, but they must have their mouths covered. And the week notes it was an ugly week last week for all of us after President Trump ordered the Treasury Department to print his name on the $1,200 stimulus checks to taxpayers that Congress funded, slowing the checks mailing by several days. It marks the first time any president's name has ever appeared on an IRS disbursement to taxpayers. And we're not sure whether it's uh, good, bad, or ugly, but it's certainly appropriate for 420, which passed a few days ago, that somebody's smoking a little too much weed. This is clear after actor Woody Harrelson used his Instagram account to share a theory that 5G wireless towers may exacerbate the spread of coronavirus conceded the actor, I haven't fully vetted it. He apparently returned to marijuana use last year after giving it up because of adverse effects. There appear to be yet more adverse effects. 
Take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. When we come back, we're going to speak with a good friend of ours about some misadventures in the Caribbean.